It's 6.35am on February the 11th, 2000, in Nine Elms, southwest London. A high-security van drives through lamp-lit back roads, carrying approximately 10 million pounds in cash. Having left a nearby security depot, the vehicle is now en route to a number of London's high street banks. Sat in the front are two security guards, the driver and one other. Ever vigilant, the driver checks his mirrors regularly. He's trained to keep an eye out for anything unusual. Though, in truth, he feels safe inside his armored vehicle. The van is like Fort Knox on four wheels. The cache is locked inside steel cages in the back. The cages are protected by blast-resistant doors, and the doors are protected by an armored tailgate. To gain entry requires multiple keys, some of which are kept at the locations they're heading to. The vehicle is also rigged with high-tech alarms and tracking systems. In short, it's impenetrable, or so the driver thinks. Approaching Nine Elms Lane, he passes a flatbed lorry parked near some cement works. A white sheet is partially draped over its cargo, which appears to be a large cluster of dead Christmas trees. Suddenly, the driver senses that something is out of place, a sixth sense maybe. He eyes the lorry suspiciously in the rearview mirror while continuing onward. And then, out of nowhere, a green BMW screeches in front of the security van. Hitting the brakes hard, the security driver halts to avoid a collision. The green sports car then lurches forward, slamming into the van driver's door and pinning him in. Both security guards stare in terrified bewilderment through the window at their attacker. Behind the wheel of the BMW, a large man wearing a black balaclava holds up a gun and points it directly at them. Instinctively, the security van driver tries to reverse, but in his panic, he struggles to find the right gear. But the guards quickly realize that escape is impossible. An assortment of other large vehicles, including vans and lorries, have suddenly appeared, blocking off both ends of the street. They watch in horror as more masked men emerge. Waving guns, they frighten off terrified pedestrians and surround the van. Trying to remain calm, the guards remind themselves the glass is bulletproof and the doors are locked fast. They just need to sit tight and wait for the police. It's just then they become aware of another vehicle maneuvering behind them, the suspect lorry loaded with Christmas trees. Facing away from them, it backs up and parks in the middle of the road. One of the masked men steps forward and strips off the white canvas sheet covering the back. As tired-looking Christmas trees fall away, the robber's plan is suddenly revealed. The guards can't believe their eyes. It appears that a huge metal spike has been mounted and welded onto the back of the lorry. It's a homemade battering ram. Even from this distance, the spike looks large enough to easily pierce the van's reinforced doors. But before the crooks can deploy it, they need to lower the armored tailgate from the back of the security van. Here, they run into trouble. They can't make it budge. Struggling, they trigger a deafening alarm. Growing agitated, the entire gang now swarm around the tailgate, trying to force it down. Meanwhile, on the surrounding streets, traffic is building due to the roadblocks. The morning motorists, unaware of what's unfolding ahead of them, are becoming irate. One curious commuter, seemingly oblivious to the ongoing heist further up the road, wanders over to see what's causing the delay. 
Reaching the now unattended lorry turned battering ram parked in the street, he's surprised to find the driver's door wide open, the engine running, and the keys in the ignition. Looking about and seeing no sign of the driver, he reaches in, turns off the engine, and removes the keys, before sauntering off in the opposite direction, presumably looking for the owner. It's the kind of random act that turns a well-planned robbery into a comedy of errors. Moments later, having successfully lowered the tailgate, the masked lorry driver returns, only to find the keys missing. As he frantically searches for them, his accomplices demand to know why he isn't ramming the spike into the van. With the sound of sirens rising in the distance, finally one of the robbers curses as he looks at his stopwatch. They've taken too long. Let's go, he commands. With that, the men suddenly abandon the heist, but not before covering their tracks. Explosions tear through the city street as one by one, the gang's vehicles burst into flames. As the vehicles burn behind them, the masked men run towards the bank of the nearby River Thames, before bundling onto an inflatable speedboat and heading westwards downstream. The gang leave a scene of utter devastation behind them. A morning commute turned into a war zone. The two traumatized security drivers can't quite believe what's happened, but they're relieved it's over. But for this masked gang, it's only the beginning. They may have failed this time, but these crooks won't easily be put off. As the year 2000 unfolds, this tenacious gang will attempt a number of other robberies, culminating in a raid that will take place at the very heart of Britain's millennial celebrations. If successful, this heist will no doubt be the crime of the century, or any century for that matter. That is, if Scotland Yard's flying squad don't catch them first. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Less than three miles away, on the other side of the Thames, is New Scotland Yard, the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police. Detective Superintendent John Shatford has arrived typically early and is reviewing last night's armed robbery reports. Shatford is operational head of the Flying Squad, Scotland Yard's anti-robbery unit. He's settling down at his desk, when a subordinate rushes into his office. There's been an incident at Nine Elms, she tells him. Within minutes, D.S. Shatford and his team are racing over Vauxhall Bridge as more details come through. Unfortunately, the approach to the scene is complicated by the gridlock caused by the roadblocks and explosions. By the time the flying squad arrives, the fire services have already extinguished the burning vehicles. Their blasted out remains remind Shatford more of the aftermath of a terrorist strike than an attempted robbery. The scale and force of it is unlike anything he's seen before. As witnesses are rounded up, D.S. Shatford inspects the smouldering vehicles. The explosions have done an effective job of destroying any forensic evidence that might have existed. Ignoring the burning smell filling the air, Shatford takes a closer look at the sharp metal spike protruding from the back of the burnt-out lorry. It has been embedded in concrete and welded onto the chassis. Inspecting it, Shatford has no doubt that it could easily have pierced the back of the security van. When he's told by an officer that the only reason the heist failed was because a random pedestrian pinched the keys from the ignition, he can't help but smile briefly. Funny how things work out. Though there's nothing amusing about the carnage caused, just then, one of his officers finds a clue that the detonation could not destroy. Somebody has etched a name onto the underside of the spike. It reads, Gertie. D.S. Shatford has to hand it to this gang. Their attempt was both audacious and meticulously planned. A sealed off target area, a concealed battering ram, rigged explosions. Not to mention their successful speedboat getaway. These guys are clearly serious operators. In the weeks that follow, the trail for the Ram Raiders runs cold. Witnesses claim the masked men might have had South London accents, but beyond that, they aren't much help. And, unusually for such a crime, no one among the police's network of informants seems to know anything about it. But D.S. Shatford has enough experience to know that a gang of this caliber won't stay quiet for long. He's sure they're already planning their next adventure. It's just a matter of when. It's 9.30am on July the 7th, 2000 at New Scotland Yard. Five months have passed since the Nine Elms job, and DS John Shatford has almost admitted defeat when he finally receives the call he's long been expecting. There's been another attempted robbery on a security van carrying millions in cash, an officer tells him this time in Aylesford in Kent. It's clearly the same gang as Nine Elms, 
As before, the villains blocked off both ends of a road with their vehicles. They then used a giant metal spike to try and ram open the back of the van. On this occasion, they succeeded, smashing through the metal doors. However, in yet another miraculous intervention, a passing police car arrived on the scene and spooked them off. Once again, they escaped on a waiting speedboat, but not before firing several gunshots at the police as they fled. It's another close shave, and with the use of firearms, it's clear to D.S. Shatford how dangerous these crooks might be. Investigating the fallout of this second robbery, Shatford gains further insight into the type of men he's dealing with. The giant ramming spike is identical to Gertie from Nine Elms. It even has Gertie too scratched onto it. And under that, one of the criminals has added a mischievous message for the police. It reads, Persistent, aren't we? D.S. Shatford is taken aback by the sheer nerve of the gang. They'd gotten even closer on this second attempt. They very nearly had their hands on nine million pounds in hard cash. However, this time, their escape was less well executed. Although their abandoned vehicles were again rigged with explosives, this time they didn't detonate, which means there is much more forensic evidence for the flying squad to work with. But things really start looking up when just hours after the Aylesford raid, a young detective constable comes forward with information that could break open the case. This young DC thinks he recognizes some of the abandoned vehicles from the heist. Now, having run the number plates and other details through the police computer system, he's discovered something interesting. It turns out two of them have been previously sighted on a property that was already under surveillance by Kent police, who are investigating a series of car thefts. Tong Farm is situated some 20 miles from Aylesford. It's a remote location surrounded by 50 acres of orchards. D.S. Shatford is delighted to learn about the connection found between the Aylesford vehicles and Tong Farm. Could this rural location be the gang's hideout? Seems promising to him. He's informed that Tong Farm is owned by a local family called the Wenhams. Lee Wenham is a scrap metal dealer in his early 30s. He's already known to the police as a low-level criminal, but Shatford thinks it's unlikely he'll prove to be the mastermind behind these heists. But he hopes that, if the flying squad places Tong Farm under close surveillance, the real players will eventually appear. By late July, just a few short weeks after the Aylesford heist, Shatford launches a full-scale investigation into Tong Farm. And the flying squad don't do things by halves. He deploys a crack team of rural surveillance experts, otherwise known as crop officers, to keep Tong Farm under constant observation. Using telescopes and long-range cameras, scores of camouflage crop officers hide in surrounding ditches, trees and hedgerows, recording everything going on at the farm. The operation is made even harder by the punishing weather conditions they have to endure. The summer of 2000 is one of the wettest in recent memory, and the undercover crop officers must lie still in the rising mud as heavy rain pelts down onto them. However, their efforts yield results. As the weeks pass, it becomes apparent that there is indeed something fishy going on at Tong Farm. On August the 2nd, a yellow JCB digger is observed arriving at the farm in convoy with a white transit van. 
It isn't apparent whether this JCB is another stolen vehicle or if it's to be employed as part of a future robbery. But it doesn't seem as if it's being put to use on the farm itself. But for DS Shatford, the real excitement begins when officers start identifying some of the characters they've observed visiting Wenham at the farm. One regular visitor is a man in his 50s who drives the white transit van. The flying squad give him the code name Beach and notice that he occasionally parks up overnight and sleeps in the back of his van. On August the 17th, Beach is picked up by local police for dangerous driving. This reveals his identity as Terence Millman, a 56-year-old convicted criminal who's previously served 14 years in prison for armed robbery. Millman is charged with drink driving and interviewed about some cannabis found in his possession, but he's released on bail soon afterwards. No doubt, Millman can't believe his good fortune. Little does he know, however, that the flying squad are now watching his every move. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen for free only on Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Days later, a forensic report detects Millman's fingerprints on several items left over from the Aylesford heist. Now, there is an even stronger evidential link between the Gertie gang and Tong Farm. But as with Wenham, Terry Millman doesn't strike John Shatford as being someone who could run such a well-organized gang. For now, all they can do is keep watching out for the ringleader to emerge and be ready to pounce if the gang tries anything. Weeks later, crop officers observe another two men making regular visits to Tong Farm. Their identities are eventually confirmed as Ray Betson and William Cochrane. These two are successful career criminals well known to the police. Betson is suspected in a series of felonies, including burglary, fraud, theft and smuggling. Despite this, he has few criminal convictions, suggesting that he's extremely good at what he does. Shatford finds it easy to believe that this could be the mastermind behind the Gertie gang. The other man, William Cockrum, is reportedly Betson's number two. He's considered highly dangerous. D.S. Shatford is now confident that they've identified the core members of the gang. Between them, this criminal quartet possesses the location, experience and capability to both plan and execute high-caliber robberies. 
and given the buzz of activity on the farm, it seems likely that their next big job is already in the works. This suspicion is confirmed at the end of August when crop officers report a familiar vehicle being towed into the yard. A speedboat, the gang's signature getaway vehicle. Although D.S. Shatford strongly suspects another heist is imminent, the Flying Squad can't arrest these villains ahead of time. Although they have some fingerprints and other circumstantial links to the Aylesford raid, they don't have enough to charge them yet. The truth is, when it comes to an armed robbery, there's only one way to really secure a conviction. Catch them in the act. And to do that requires what the squad refer to as a pavement ambush, a large-scale sting operation performed in the open. But to do this, they need to discover the gang's next target. The speedboat indicates that once again the raid will take place near water, so Shatford asks for a list of potential targets to be drawn up along the Thames or any other nearby rivers. But that still leaves a wide range of possibilities. Without intel from inside the farm, but now all they can do is watch. It's August the 24th at Kent Police Headquarters in Maidstone. Assembled in the third floor conference room are the top detectives working the case, including those from the Flying Squad, the Scotland Yard Surveillance Unit, and Kent Police. DS Shatford is agitated. He wants to know what new information has been discovered. Their answers don't impress him. The weather conditions are making close observation difficult, the crop officers tell him. Not only that, but dogs patrol the farm at all times, and the gang appear to be using untraceable burner phones to communicate with each other. Shatford asks about Lee Wenham, Tong Farm's owner. As the youngest and least conspicuous of the gang, Wenham has been placed under especially tight surveillance in the hope that his inexperience might cause him to make a mistake. But the team explains that when Wenham isn't on the farm, he's typically down the pub or visiting his girlfriend. Although it seems he did recently go on a day trip to London. But all he did was standard tourist activities, like visiting London's newest attraction, the Millennium Dome. The white, giant, dome-like structure is situated in Greenwich on the southern bank of the River Thames. It houses the Millennium Experience, a government-backed exhibition celebrating human civilization at the cusp of the 21st century. Such a visit is hardly suspicious in itself, until one of the intelligence officers present observes that Wenham is thought to be planning to return to the dome in the coming days. He's already purchased a family ticket. At this, a collective laugh goes up in the room. The idea strikes the detectives as ludicrous. You see, the Millennium Dome has become something of a national joke in recent times, as well as a political disaster for the government. Said to have cost over £750 million in taxpayers' money, the Dome has been dogged by financial mismanagement, low attendance and extremely negative reviews from across the British media. An overpriced, unpopular fiasco, the idea that anyone, least of all a crook like Wenham, would voluntarily pay to go to such a place once, let alone twice, seems absurd to the detectives. In fact, one DI quips that going to the Dome twice should be enough to get nicked for. As the detectives continue to laugh at the idea, one inspector, formerly based at Greenwich, tentatively throws out a suggestion. 
Unless they're going to steal the Millennium Diamonds, he says. An uneasy silence settles on the room. D.S. Shatford, his attention suddenly sharpened, asks the officer to elaborate. The officer explains that currently, the Millennium Dome is also home to one of the largest collections of flawless diamonds in the world, courtesy of the De Beers Diamond Mining Company. It is said to be valued at around 250 million pounds. The centerpiece is the Millennium Star, a flawless 203.04 carat diamond. Months earlier, the star, as well as the priceless blue diamonds that surround it, were unveiled to great publicity by De Beers. D.S. Shatford sits back in his chair and contemplates the wild notion. What if the thieves had seen this publicity and decided that, instead of raiding another security van, they'll go after the diamonds instead? Shatford gets up and goes over to the large map of the River Thames pinned on the wall. He follows the thick blue line snaking around the Greenwich Peninsula. The dome practically perched on the embankment. You could park a speedboat right on its doorstep, so to speak. Shatford puffs out his cheeks. The idea is staggering. It's such an ambitious, sensational target that deep down, he can't help but wish for it to be true. It could be the biggest heist ever attempted in British criminal history. But if they're right, this investigation has become even more dangerous. It's difficult enough trying to catch criminals in the act as they raid security vans on public streets. But to allow armed robbers to storm into a popular tourist attraction, the stakes just got massively higher. The following day, plainclothes officers are scattered around the Millennium Experience, posing as tourists. The flying squad are concerned that the gang might have an inside man working within the dome. Because of this, they've told the staff here that they're simply carrying out an investigation into local drug dealers. Under this pretense, Detective Constable Sean Allen has gained access to the dome's CCTV control room. Allen watches on the monitor as Lee Wenham arrives, accompanied by a woman and a little girl. Zooming in closer, he sees that Wenham is carrying a small camcorder in his hands. Alan tracks Wenham's movements closely as he continues to explore the exhibition. The Millennium Dome is divided into 14 zones, each of which focus on a different facet of life. There is the body zone, which features a large replica of a human body. There's also a faith zone, a mind zone, a learning zone, and so forth. But much to the girl's obvious disappointment, Lee Wenham seems interested in only one place, the money zone, where the diamond vault displaying the De Beers collection is located. From the control room, DC Allen watches Wenham as he follows other tourists into the dark, circular chamber. Wenham seems particularly interested in filming the entrance to the vault and the glass case in its center containing the Millennium Star. He returns no less than three times during his visit. Afterwards, Wenham is seen exploring the edge of the River Thames, looking in both directions. Then he leaves with the woman and child. It now seems obvious to D.S. Shapford that the gang really do intend to try and steal the Millennium Star. He can't quite believe it. A theft of this magnitude. 
it's no exaggeration to say his career might be on the line. There's no room for failure. He wastes no time setting in motion what will become known as Operation Magician. First, Shatford informs the De Beers group of the likelihood that their precious diamonds are under threat. When their head of security is told of the potential strike, he's sceptical of the gang's chances. After all, the Millennium Star is housed within a complex and expensive security system involving time locks, concrete walls and steel doors. That said, the public has access to the vault during the exhibition's opening hours, so it's conceivable that armed robbers could storm in then while the doors are wide open. But even then, the diamond is sealed within a reinforced 22mm thick glass surround. The De Beers man assures the police that the case is able to withstand a person smashing at it for over 30 minutes with any known device. Satisfied, D.S. Shatford agrees that it's unlikely the thieves will try to steal the Millennium Star while it's inside the vault. Considering their history of hitting security vans, he thinks it's more likely they'll try to rob the jewels while they're being transported to a different location. And it just so happens that the De Beers collection is scheduled to be relocated to Tokyo for a two-week exhibition. Next week, on September the 1st, the jewels will be transported by security van to the De Beers headquarters in the city of London before then being flown to Japan. Meanwhile, replica diamonds will take their place within the money zone. D.S. Shatford suddenly realises there's no time to lose. If the crooks do have an inside man, there's no doubt they know all about the Japanese exhibition. Shatford springs into action. He makes a flurry of phone calls. He pulls every string to try and set up a trap using every resource available to him. It's 9.25 a.m. on September the 1st, Canary Wharf, the north side of the River Thames. On top of the tallest high-rise in Britain, a flying squad officer trains his long-range binoculars across the river towards Greenwich. At 800 feet, he has an excellent view of the seven-mile journey that the security van carrying the diamonds will take from the dome, through the Blackwall Tunnel, into the East End, and onto the city of London. It's a front row seat to what will be the biggest counter ambush operation in flying squad history. DS Shatford has arranged for a total of 300 officers to follow the diamonds on their perilous journey. At 9.30 a.m., the security van leaves the dome with the diamonds inside. Eight unmarked flying squad cars discreetly escort the van on its journey, each carrying a squad of armed detectives. Ambulance crews are at the ready, and surveillance officers line the route. A mile away, two RAF helicopters containing an armed strike team are waiting for the order to take to the skies should they be needed. On the river, high-speed boats containing police sharpshooters are also ready for action. It's all been arranged at great expense, but Shatford thinks the measures are necessary. After all, the gang have proven themselves to be armed and dangerous. If they were to scale up their efforts for this job, then a full-on gun battle could well be about to take place in the center of the nation's capital. For the sake of public safety, D.S. Shatford feels he must be ready to use overwhelming force as a potential response. As the security van enters the Blackwall Tunnel, flying squad cars surround it on all sides. For two minutes, as it travels underground, Shatford and the rest of the squad hold their breath. They lose all contact with the convoy. 
This is the part of the journey where the van is at its most vulnerable. Should the ambush take place underneath the river, there will be fewer officers to protect it and potentially the greatest risk of danger to the public. When the security van emerges onto the north side of the river, he breathes a huge sigh of relief. The convoy continues on its journey. Shatford is now confident that if they attack, his forces will overpower them swiftly with minimum risk to public life. But much to his despair, 20 minutes later, the convoy arrives at the De Beers headquarters without incident. Shatford is bewildered and more than a little embarrassed. All that manpower and expense and the gang didn't even show up. Afterwards, he returns to his office in New Scotland Yard and sinks his head into his hands. How could he have got it so wrong? Much like the dome itself, Operation Magician has cost a fortune in public money and so far has proven unsatisfactory. John Shatford is convinced that misjudgment will cost him his career. He's just beginning to slump further into despair when he receives a call from an undercover officer at the dome with some astonishing news. Less than an hour after the diamonds had reached their destination, Detective Constable Allen spotted something surprising in the CCTV control room. Immediately phoning his superior officer, he tells Shatford that on the monitors he can see two of the men from Tong Farm casually walking around the money zone. Ray Betson and William Cockrum have entered the vaults and are filming the diamonds, just as Lee Wenham had done a week earlier. They seem totally unaware that the jewels on display are replicas. This can only mean that the gang had no idea about the Tokyo trip after all. D.S. Shatford feels immense relief. He realizes he's given these crooks too much credit. They probably don't have an inside man at the dome, or at least nobody high up. And if they're still casing the jewels, then that also means the heist is still on. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Over the next few weeks, police surveillance confirms that the gang are still planning on making a grab for the jewels. They're seen testing the speedboat in a coastal town. After failing to get it started, Terry Millman is seen purchasing a new one from a boatyard. D.S. Shatford is told that Millman signed for the new boat under a new alias, Terry Diamond. He can't help but laugh at their cheek. Soon after that, the JCB is transported to London and parked up at a secluded coal yard a few miles from the dome. Meanwhile, the crooks are still making regular visits to the dome, 
and are often seen studying the river around it. D.S. Shatford now realises that the gang must want to strike at the dome itself during visitor hours. This will make arranging an ambush much more complicated and the risk to public safety even greater. The wait is excruciating. What's taking the gang so long to make their move? By early October, the real diamonds have returned from Japan and once again are on display in the money zone. Perhaps these crooks know what's going on after all. Shatford desperately needs to find out the dates of their planned attack. Then it occurs to him. Consulting tidal charts, he learns that in the coming weeks, the river's highest tide will be on November the 6th. He deduces that this must explain the delay. The gang are planning their escape. It's the early hours of the 6th of November, 2000. High tide. Hundreds of armed officers have been smuggled into the dome in the back of furniture vans. Many of them are disguised as cleaners, their guns hidden inside bin liners. Others are dressed as tour guides. At 6.50 a.m., surveillance officers monitoring the Plumstead coal yard call through with news. The JCB is on the move. Inside the dome's CCTV control room, Shatford listens to the progress reports. This is it, he thinks. However, as the JCB makes its approach toward the dome, disaster strikes. A traffic accident occurs ahead of the JCB. As a result, ambulances and police cars appear from all around, spooking the robbers. The JCB withdraws from its journey and returns to the coal yard. The heist has been abandoned again. Shatford can't believe their bad luck. With costs spiraling higher, he thinks it likely the Home Office will pull the plug on Operation Magician within the next 24 hours. However, consulting the tidal maps again, he sees that the Thames is still high enough tomorrow for the thieves to make their speedboat escape. Knowing it's his last chance to ambush these crooks, Shatford orders his undercover officers to remain in position for just one more day. All he can do is wait and hope he's right. It's the morning of November the 7th. Once more, the flying squad have undercover armed officers surrounding the Millennium Exhibition. Helicopters and boats are again on standby, and Shatford is back in the CCTV control room watching the monitors closely. At 8.45am, the report comes through. The JCB has again left the coal yard and is trundling towards the dome. Then another report. Millman's white van is spotted towing the speedboat towards the north side of the Thames. Once at the bank of the river, Millman remains with the van while another, as yet unidentified man, gets in the boat. The speedboat heads towards the Millennium Dome, performing a drive-by. By 9.30, the JCB nears the final approach to the dome. Ray Betson, the assumed leader of the gang, is identified as the man at the wheel while another three ride with him in their heavily modified cab. Leaving the main road, the JCB continues onward to the dome, negotiating its way slowly through sand and gravel pits. In the dome's control room, a rather nervy-looking DS John Shatford waits on tenterhooks. What will happen next is a mystery. Although a strike is clearly imminent, he still has no idea what this JCB is actually planning to do. 
The digger reaches the perimeter fence of the dome sites. Then it stops and waits. Just then, Shatford is notified of a problem. A worst-case scenario is developing. A group of schoolchildren have just arrived at the money zone and are about to enter the diamond vault. Shatford quickly orders his officers to rush them out of there at once, even if it means breaking cover to do so. Then, as if on cue, the JCB raises back into life. On the CCTV monitor, Shatford sees the JCB lurching forward. It gathers speed before smashing through the perimeter fence. It's charging at 20 miles an hour towards the dome itself. Dear Shatford watches on, incredulous. The JCB approaches the 15-foot-high security gate. They crash straight through it. They're heading directly for gate four, he realizes. The money zone. Surely they can't be planning on just smashing through the dome wall. He'd expected some sophisticated ruse, some deception. But it appears brute force is all they have planned. Inside the dome, just as the final schoolchild is being rushed to safety, the JCB reaches the outer perspex skin of the dome, then, to the amazement of everyone watching, crashes through the sidewall. Debris showers down onto the interior of the exhibition as the JCB makes a sharp right turn. A group of astonished Japanese tourists scream and take cover as a terrified stilt walker loses their balance and nearly tips over. Arriving at the Diamond Vault, the three other crooks jump out of the JCB wearing hoods, body armor, and gas masks. Thankfully, none of them appears to be carrying firearms, but one detonates a grenade. Plumes of blue smoke billow out as the other two, clutching sledgehammers and a nail gun, run through the narrow corridor into the jewel chamber. Standing before the unguarded Millennium Starcase, one robber holds up a huge industrial nail gun to its reinforced glass. In another room, members of the De Beers security staff watch their monitors in horror. Up to now, they've been confident that no device could smash through their glass. They were wrong. Once the robber is finished with his nail gun, it's clear that the glass has weakened dramatically. The robbers then begin smashing a hole into the glass with their sledgehammers. Through sheer force and determination, the gang are just seconds away from laying their hands on 250 million pounds of diamonds. In the control room, DS Shatford gives the order. Strike, 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 he shouts into his radio. With that, dozens of undercover officers suddenly emerge, pulling out their guns and surrounding the entrance to the vault. From behind a false wall, another 20 armed officers sweep into the money zone. Faced with such an army, the JCB driver and the smoke grenade man surrender instantly. Still inside the dark, smoke-filled vault, the two other robbers can no longer be seen. Unsure if they're armed, the police throw stun grenades bouncing down the corridor. The strength of the blasts throw the two crooks to the floor as armed officers charge through the fog to arrest them. Within minutes, all four of the dazed dome raiders are in handcuffs. Meanwhile, out on the river, a similar scene is unfolding. The getaway driver in the speedboat had attempted to dock on the dome's landing stage, but now he too is surrounded by armed policemen in boats. Minutes later, on the north side of the river, 
Terry Millman, the second getaway driver in his transit van, is also picked up. The flying squad has thwarted what was potentially the biggest robbery in British history, caught all known suspects, and best of all, there are no casualties. It's a tremendous result for DS Shatford and the Yard. Operation Magician has been wholly successful, and in the end, quite satisfactory. The attempted raid on the Millennium Dome has an explosive effect when reported by the national media. Capturing the public imagination with its JCBs, speedboats and smoke grenades, the heist reads like something from a Bond film. The Sun runs with a memorable headline. I'm only here for De Beers. Exactly a year and a day later, on November the 8th, 2001, a trial for the robbers is held at the Old Bailey. By now, Terence Millman, who'd signed his name Terry Diamond when buying the getaway boat, has died of cancer. The other robbers, including Betson, Cockrum, and three others are in the dock, listening to the De Beers head of security give his testimony. When asked by the judge what he thinks of the gang's strategy, he replies that it was exceptional and brilliantly executed. At this, the five crooks grin at one another, clearly delighted by the compliment. Their defense argues that they'd not used firearms during the raid and so shouldn't be considered as dangerous criminals. But considering they crashed a steel JCB through the wall of a public place, this cuts little ice with the judge. Betson and Cockrum are sentenced to 18 years imprisonment, as are the others who rode with them on the JCB. The getaway driver gets five. In a separate trial, Lee Wenham is sentenced to five years for his role, as well as a further nine for his part in the Aylesford heist. Nobody else is ever convicted for the other attacks that took place earlier in 2000. The Millennium Dome heist is one of the most memorable successes from Scotland Yard's recent history. Had it not been for the connection made between the vehicles used in a previous heist and the criminal activities on Tong Farm, there is a strong chance that the thieves would have made off with jewellery currently valued at over £350 million. But thanks to the vigilance of the flying squad and the efforts of all the officers on Operation Magician, this spectacular crime was brilliantly averted. Sadly, next week will be the final episode of Scotland Yard Confidential, but we're going out with a bang. On the evening of Thursday, the 24th of April, 1975, six smartly dressed gentlemen let themselves into the Bank of America in London's Mayfair. But they're not here to work. They're here to break into the vault and lay their hands on the eight million pounds worth of gold, valuables and cash inside. Little do they know that the inside man who's helped them plan the job will also be the cause of their downfall. In a case that makes history for both the size of the heist and the events thereafter, the robbery of the Bank of America is one of the defining moments in the history of Scotland Yard. That's next time on Scotland Yard Confidential.
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by James Benmore. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.